Here we go, here we go. Welcome to Police Pod Talk. Whoop, whoop, it's the police. Don't look in your rearview mirror. This podcast covers the latest police news, along with hitting the hot topics you've been talking about all week. I'm your host, Cleveland. Thank you for joining us. Folks, welcome back to Police Pod Talk. We're glad you're here. We're getting started again uh, this week, and I am thrilled to death to have someone here with me today that I have been chasing for quite some time. I see her on the news. Uh, I've been following her, and we finally hooked up. And uh, uh, I've got Stacy Davis here with me today. Stacy, you can say hello to the people. The hello. Listeners. All right, that way they know you're here, and I'm not talking to myself. All right. All right. Stacy is with a group called Java which stands for Justice, Accountability, and Victims Advocacy. And Stacy agreed to be with me here today, and she's pretty busy, so it's kind of hard catching up with her. But Stacy, I'm going to let you kind of introduce yourself to the people, to the listeners, and then we'll get deep into what JAVA actually stands for and how you became involved in it. Go right ahead. Okay. Um, my name is Stacy Davis, as he said. Um, I am a mom to an angel who was sent to heaven through homicide. Um, that is, that's, I mean, that when my son got killed, I was one of the people that drank the Kool-Aid and thought our, our community was safe and like bad guys do bad things and the police get them and lock them up and that was that. and. My eyes were very quickly open to the fact that that's not how it works, um, or at least at that time was not how it worked. And um, through my experiences and um, feeling so isolated and not understanding and there was no one to explain to me what was going on or how this worked, um, I, I found a lot of gaps in the system. and. Um, when I started coming out of the fog of Cody's death, because when you lose a child, it, it, it's devastating. I mean, it just is to the core. And um, I, I call it the fog for about the first year because you can't think. You just are on autopilot and you're influenced by the things that people tell you and, and for example, the detective told me it was going to be a capital case and he was going to go to prison for the rest of his life. And um, I believed a lot of it. So as I navigated through and found my way through the system by myself, I started looking for other homicide families. And um, I found lots of them because at that time there were lots of homicides happening i mean the year my son got killed in 2016 broke the homicide record hmm. so um the more families i found the more i discovered that the um the things that they were telling me in my case that like and I'll go into that in a little bit, but there were a lot of things that fell through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to other families who were having similar things falling through the cracks. And like, I was, I was told it was an anomaly, like this doesn't happen when it happened in my case. And then as I found more families, 
the same things were happening in their case. So now, now, when you say the same things were happening, explain to the listeners what do you mean? Like what was that? Well, on that part, but I can can we go back just a little bit? And I know you're on a roll. I'm sorry. No, no problem. I want to make sure our listeners understand. Cody is his name, right? Correct. Are you comfortable with talking about a little bit about what happened to lead into this to where you're at? Sure. Okay. Let them know. Okay. So, um, December 6th of 2016, um, my son, well, I, I, let me just start with the phone call because a lot of, of families will relate to the phone call because that's usually how it starts. That's mm -hmm. where these stories start. Um, I got a phone call from his best friend and roommate that I needed to get to state bar because Cody was unconscious behind the bar. So um, he hung up and I was trying to drive to State Bar and Grill to find out what was happening and I kept trying to call him back and he wasn't answering and I later found out it was because the police had taken his phone. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was trying to get there as fast as I could and as I came up over from, from Cl or, uh, yeah, Clinton on state mm -hmm. to that hill at East State Village, the whole horizon was lit up with emergency lights, so I knew it was something bad. Mm -hmm. um, when I got there, the police wouldn't, they wouldn't answer any of my questions. They didn't, they just kept brushing me off and telling me to go away, and um, I was asking them if it was my son, because the people on the scene were telling me it was a shooting. Mm -hmm. And putting that together with Zach's phone call, like I knew it, it was he who got shot and um, they wouldn't tell me anything. So I saw an ambulance leave the scene. So I got in my car and I followed the ambulance up to Parkview Randalia and um, they wouldn't tell me anything. All they could tell me was that Cody wasn't there. And then I heard the chopper, the um, Samaritan, Samaritan right. light up on the top of the hospital. So I followed the Samaritan out to PRMC and come to find out it was the shooter that was that I was following, not mm -hmm. my son, because he was dying at the scene and they wouldn't let me back there to and they wouldn't even tell me if it for sure was him. So all of this driving around to the hospital following the Samaritan helicopter. Who was helping you? Who was telling you anything? Or you were doing all this on your own? I was doing it all on my own. Okay. The police wouldn't tell me anything. Um, the one officer, before I left and followed the, the um, ambulance, there was one officer that started interrogating me. Like, if, what, why, why do you think your son was here? What was he doing? Why would he have been here? Who was he with? And I'm like, I don't know any of that information. Like, can you just tell me if it's my son? Like, these are his tattoos. These are what he probably was wearing, these shoes, because he always wore the same shoes. You know, like, I was trying to give them an, an, a description of him so they could tell me if it was him or not right. as he laid there dying. Um, but they, wouldn't, they wanted to interrogate me and didn't give me any information. So I just took it on myself to try to figure it out. Right. Okay, sorry, and I stopped you. You follow him to the uh, Parkview North. Mm -hmm. You found out that was not your son. What happened after that? Well, and actually, I didn't. They still would wouldn't tell me if Cody was anywhere in the Parkview system, okay. um, or who was in the helicopter. Right. None of that. So, 
Um, by that time, Cody's girlfriend had met up with me out at PRMC. And um, we were sitting in my car trying to figure out what to do next. So we decided we were gonna drive back to the scene. And um, right, right about that time, my phone rang and it was a 449 number. So I knew it was somebody mm -hmm. from the system. Right. And they asked me where I, was, where I was and I told them I was at PRMC and I was heading back to the scene and they said, okay, the detective's ready to talk to you. So he'll just meet you at the scene. Mm -hmm. So at that time I knew that he was deceased because they would have been meeting me at a hospital right. if he wasn't. So I got back to the scene and um, the first person out of the police car was the chaplain. And I, I don't remember a whole lot. I remember falling to my knees and that guttural, guttural cry that I've heard so many moms make since this has happened. Hmm. And um, I think victim's assistance was there. I ended up with a card from victim's assistance. So I think they were there or somebody in the stack of cards I got that night, right, which right. was the detective, his supervisor and victim's assistance. Um, and that, I mean, it, it just rocked. It rocked my, my whole world. like. It still isn't the same. Mm -hmm. It never has been the same. Probably will never be the same. But that was that was the starting point of my journey. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about uh, Cody. Cody was um, he was a great kid. He had a heart of gold. Um, he had ADHD, mm -hmm. and I knew that at a very young age. I mean, from the time that he started rolling. He would roll from wall to wall, to wall mm -hmm. to wall. I mean, he was always a very active child, so he struggled in school. Um, it took me forever to get him an IEP so that he could have some help with school. Right. And um, even, even though I did that, I mean, a lot of the teachers in high school didn't follow his IEP or whatever. So he, he struggled getting through school, but he did graduate um, from the adult program at Anthos. Right. And um, then he he was an adult, and right. he he helped anybody that he could. I mean, he was buying his own buying his house, and there was always someone sleeping on his couch because they didn't have a place to stay, or right, right. didn't get along with mom and dad, so they got booted out. And um, he was doing early 20-something dumb stuff, and right. that's what ultimately ended up getting him killed. Right. So you're meeting with the detectives. Did they call you in, you sit down and never meet, and they tell you what happened? Um, well, so... Wait, you have a handful of cards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did they tell you to do? My, de my detective was the one that I, I talked with the most, okay. and um, we knew from the night it happened who did it because Cody shot back. Oh, okay. And that guy almost almost died. He was in the hospital. He his girlfriend took him to the hospital and um so they they knew from that night who it was. I knew from that night that they knew who it was, but mm -hmm. it took me a few months to figure out who it was because the detective wouldn't tell me. Well, who was in the helicopter? The the suspect, the actually the person that got convicted of Cody's murder. Okay. All right, because you said the girlfriend took him to the hospital. I thought he was in a helicopter. 
Well, she took him to Randalia. That the ambulance, they, they, okay. the ambulance that I followed actually was empty. Okay. She had already driven him to Randalia in right. in her personal car. Right. And um, they took that car into custody and and got mm -hmm. found the gun under the seat that he was in and um, got all DNA all from the car and and the gun. Okay. Um, but so they knew who it was. Okay. And my detective wouldn't tell me, I guess, probably because they thought I might go right. to the hospital and take care of it myself, which, honestly, I can't say I wouldn't have. Right. I right. mean, my frame of mind at that point in time was just crazy. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, I forget where I was. <laughs> well, you were, you were talking about the detective sitting down with you. They knew who it was. They started talking to you. What was the conversation like? So, um... The detective told me that he, at first he told me that he was probably not going to make it. So in my mind, that was kind of my, my justice was that Cody killed him too. Mm -hmm. um, then, I don't know, month, month and a half, he told me that he was going to make it, but he was going to have a permanent trach. He was going to have to live in a rehab hospital the rest of his life. Um, that... They hadn't had a chance to interview him, right. and his girlfriend said that she had left the scene, so she didn't know what happened. Right. And um, that continued for a while. So in probably early March, a friend of mine I, who I, I talked to quite often, like she was my sounding board for all the things that the detective was telling me and like how to how to navigate through all of this mess. And um, she one night said to me, I can't let you keep believing the lies that they're telling you. And I was like, what are you talking about? And so she told me that he was out of the hospital. Uh, he was not on a permanent trach. He walked out of the hospital on his own. He had been released like two or three weeks prior to her finally telling me. And the reason that she knew this was because she was his nurse and um or one of his nurses you knew she was a nurse i knew she was a nurse and i knew she worked at parkview but i did not know and i mean she could have lost her job for telling me these things so um it was it wasn't until i told her about the permanent trach and like how i was feeling that 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 might be the only justice that i get right and um so i found out who I found that information out and I mean it took me a while to talk her into telling me his name but she finally did mm. and I was up all night that night so and you weren't getting any of this information from the detective you got this information from someone else. my own detective work yes Wow did, I'm sorry for stopping because this is I'm hearing this for the first time I hadn't you and I've never met before right so you're telling me the detectives telling you one thing but you're finding out the actual truth on the other side. Right. Did you ever come together with that detective and say, wait a minute? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You go right ahead. I want to hear this. The next day, I was up that whole night researching him. I found where he lived, where he grew up. I found his grandma and his mom on Facebook. Um, but the very first thing that I found, just from a simple Google search, was that he had a warrant in Allen County, a misdemeanor warrant okay. for theft. Okay. 
So the next morning I texted my detective and just texted him the name. And he said, where'd you get that from? And I said, that doesn't matter, is that the name? And he said, yes it is. And I said, okay, do you know he's out of the hospital? And better yet, do you know he has a warrant? And he said, he called me. Um, and we had it, I mean, I have a lot of respect for my detective. And I come from a, a background of a lot of distrust for the police. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even to this day, I would say my detective is probably one of the very few police officers that I trust. Mm -hmm. um, but, and I told him that up front, like I have a problem with police. I think they're crooked. I think there are, is a lot of corruption. Um, and I've since found out that there really is. I'm really right about that. Well, are, you, are you comfortable with saying who the detective is? Sure. Uh, do you not? Okay. Scott Tagmeyer was, okay. was my detective. And okay. he probably to this day would tell you that I don't like him. But I really do have a lot of respect for him. Okay. Um, okay. In fact, I, I told him at the time, like, the problems with our investigation, the things that th fell through the cracks, I don't fault him as much as I fault the leadership. Because... Okay. At that time, it was every man for himself. I mean, they had partners, but one person was on call for a whole week, and they could get three to four homicides in a week. Mm -hmm. So how, absent of any other thing in a vacuum going on, how would one detective investigate three or four homicides? You know, like, that was a leadership problem. and. I've come to find out since that Scott had a lot of things going on in his personal life as well, of which leadership knew, and still he, he was preparing for a, a another trial that had had a mistrial in November. My son was killed in December, the new trial was in February, so he was working with the prosecutors closely to hone up that case so they didn't get a mistrial or, a, or a, an acquittal. Um, he had personal stuff going on. He had who knows, 40-some mm -hmm. homicide cases that right. he was the lead on. Um, so I, I fault leadership more so than I fault Scott. Mm -hmm. But what fell through the cracks initially was that Scott had um, talked with, with Parkview and was making calls to Parkview when he could to check on the status right. of, of the suspect. Um, but they had told him they would notify him mm -hmm. when he got released, right. and they didn't. Right. So they, when he called, of course he was upset and called Parkview after I had my discussion with him <laughs> and they hit, tried to hide behind HIPAA. So he texted me that, so I immediately, I'm, I've worked in the healthcare industry my whole adult life. Mm -hmm. So I immediately went to Park, Parkview's privacy practices and showed him where an exception to HIPAA is a criminal investigation mm -hmm. that he needed to stand up to them and say look this is not a violation of hipaa that's after the fact right couldn't right. help me but it might help a future family right right um so that was the first thing he he didn't know he was out of the hospital um and then the warrant he w he said that he looked him up in codis and didn't have any warrants but codis is just felony warrants mm -hmm. so he did not legitimately did not know about the misdemeanor warrant so um, I've come to find out that it's likely the reason they didn't take him into custody while he was in the hospital is mm -hmm. because they then would have been responsible for the hospital bill. Um, I get it, but it's hard for a homicide family to hear.
um, frustrating. But, so, the story continues. Um, now we know the warrant's out there. Mm -hmm. So, I'm frustrated because, like, why aren't they looking for him to just right. get him on a... He, they don't even have to catch him doing anything. They don't have to have proof in the homicide. Like, they can get him in the jail just because he has a warrant. Right. So, um, after a while I got tired of the excuses and started looking for myself and I found him. Hmm. Um, Fort Wayne's really a small town for as big as it is. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, and I tell families all the time, like, uh, I truly believe in six degrees of separation. Oh yeah. Because if you ask the right six people, you're gonna find the information that you want. Oh yeah. So um, I found him. I started doing surveillance of him. I was sending Scott pictures of him going in and out of his girlfriend's house, like come and get him. Like he has a warrant. I want him in the jail. So that really came to a head about the end of March, maybe beginning of April of. 2017 Scott called me and said we've got the DNA back from the gun and I said great can we get a warrant and what he said next literally knocked me off my chair he said we need to get his DNA first he was in the hospital for two and a half months and they never got his DNA so um, that I mean literally like blew my mind I could not believe like he said that to me so now I'm on a mission because I know with that warrant out there they can get him in the jail and get his DNA right like it takes a matter of getting the judge to sign a search warrant overnight and get his DNA the next day mm -hmm. right right so my pursuit of him enhanced because Scott told me they didn't have budget for surveillance and because I'm like I sit out there three four hours a day and I see him at least once mm -hmm. so why can't your people sit out there like you see police cars sitting all around the city doing paperwork in the parking lots and you know whatever why can't one sit in front of his house and do his paperwork right so I got really frustrated and um it was on our one-year anniversary that oh wait let me back up a minute I got really frustrated with Scott and with the, the excuses and the leadership um, the one of the things that when I told you as I talked to more and more families I mm -hmm. saw a lot of commonality and one of the the catchphrases that we heard so often was we can't make them come in and talk to us so like we've made a phone call we've we've called them but they aren't returning our call and we can't make them come in and talk to us so we can't do anything hmm. and um oh it, it that was one of the things i found very common and i was getting that from scott hmm. like we've left a message we've left him i i gave him his mom his grandma's address because i knew when he left the, the hospital, that's where he was going to go. Right. That's who raised him. That's where he lived until he came to Fort Wayne. And sure enough, that's where he was. Um, but I was doing all of this to try to find him and felt like the police weren't doing anything. Mm -hmm. 
So in July of 17, yeah, July of 17, I get a call on a Friday night from one of Cody's friends and they're at Corner Pocket and Quentin is there. So I call Scott and I'm like, he's at Corner Pocket, go get him and get his DNA. Because he had told me previously, like I've got the warrant already, all I gotta do is find him, have it signed by a judge and we can get his DNA. So I called Scott and I told him he was at Corner Pocket and it's so many coincidences run through my story, but one of Cody's friends lived right across the street from Corner Pocket and could see the parking lot of Corner Pocket. So I called him and said, the police are going to get Quentin at Corner Pocket. Like, let me know when the police get there. An hour later, I'm like texting him every 15 minutes. Are they there yet? Are they there yet? Are they there yet? So an hour later, he's like, police cars just pulled in. Five minutes later, he texted me back and said, police cars are leaving. So I text Scott, I'm like, what's going on? And he said he was already gone. I'm like, wow. oh my gosh, yeah. So, of course, now I'm on surveillance of Corner Pocket. And the very next, week, well, and, and while they were there, they gave a picture of him and a copy of the warrant to the bouncers okay. at Corner Pocket. Right. So the next weekend, um, same friends are at Corner Pocket and they're of course watching for him this time. And he walks in and they go to the bouncers. The bouncers called warrants. They were there in five minutes mm. and they had him. Wow. <laughs> so this is a Friday night. Mm -hmm. I know it's a misdemeanor warrant, mm -hmm. so he's gonna get out on Monday. Mm -hmm. So I call Scott and I'm like, they, he's in custody. And he's like, why didn't you call me? I'm like, I tried that last weekend, it didn't work. So I called warrants. Yeah. And um, so Scott says, well, I can't do anything on this weekend because I'm camping. <laughs> and I'm like, so you can't call one of your buddies and say the warrant's on my desk, go get it signed? He said, no, I've got to bring him up to speed on the case, like da 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 da. So I hung up on him and um, posted on Facebook some not, not so nice stuff about we found him and now there's no detective to get his DNA and he's gonna be out on Monday. And my aunt saw it and she went to church with a different homicide detective mm -hmm. and reached out to him. He also was on vacation, but he was in town. So he went and got the warrant signed and hmm. got the DNA and questioned him the first time that anybody had been able to question him because you know they can't make him come in. Well, they made him come in. Right or we made him come right, in. Right, right. Um, so that was the first time they questioned him. He denied being even being there, like he knew nothing, yada, yada, yada. But they did get his DNA. So that was, it, going through this is like a roller coaster. I mean, you, you have hope and then your hopes get dashed, mm -hmm. you know? the. We got the DNA from the gun, but we don't have his yeah, DNA, yeah. you know? He, he's gonna be on a permanent trach. Nope, he's out of the hospital. You know, like mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. So that was an, another up on the roller coaster. Um, we've got his DNA now. They've got the DNA for the gun. It's only a matter of time, right? So Scott sends the DNA to the, to the DNA lab and it was probably 
It must have been November because that's what motiv motivated me to do what I did on the one year anniversary. November, Scott contacts me again and says, um, they have his DNA, but they can't process it against the gun because the gun has multiple DNA samples on it and the Indiana Crime Lab is not certified to separate more than two DNA samples. So they can't, even though they have already separated the four and, uh, and found a match, they're not certified to give that information for a criminal case. Okay, help me understand. They actually took four separate DNA samples off of the gun. Right. Actually, I, it was either four or five. Okay. And they're not allowed to match any one of those four. No, they're not allowed to separate the four. They, they can, they have the technology to do it and they are now certified to do that. Okay, okay. But at the time, um, it was kind of like one of their test cases to get certified was the fact that they did separate all four or five samples and they did make a match, but it wasn't legit that they could use it in the criminal case okay. because they weren't certified to do that. So he had to find a lab that was certified and he found one in Pennsylvania, and um, it, it took forever to get it back, but they, they did ultimately come back that Quentin's DNA was on the gun. Okay. So, um, yeah, it just was blunder after blunder mm -hmm. after this and that, and so ultimately in 2000, 17 the case was presented to the prosecutor's office they declined in 2018 after the dna came back that it was presented to the prosecutor's office and they declined um that was like okay so gary hamilton was the head of the homicide department and um, stephen godfrey was making the decisions on homicide cases at the prosecutor's office and um even to this day in some circles, they'll call that the Godfrey era because he was very risk averse and didn't take a case unless it was like on a silver platter. That's how it's been described to me from families like me that have experienced. Okay, well, let me ask you. I can understand the 2016 being declined for not having a DNA. What was the 2018 reason for it being declined? Um, there wasn't enough evidence. So, of course, because Cody shot back, they anticipated a, a self-defense defense. Right. And Stephen Godfrey did not feel at that time that they could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Cody didn't shoot first, which would make it legitimately self-defense. Okay. Okay. And that was in 2018, that was the reason. That was early 2018. Okay, okay, go on, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, so along, along this time, it was, let me think, November, it was in the summertime in, in 17 when Stephen Godfrey started winding down his operations at the prosecutor's office because he was 
going to be or already was appointed as a magistrate. Okay. So one one of eighteen, he moved. No, that was one one of. I don't remember the dates exactly. I should have brought my notes. That's okay. Sometime in eighteen, he moved to be a, a magistrate. Okay. And a, around the same time. Gary Hamilton left the prosecutor's office, or left the police department and moved to the prosecutor's office. Okay. So Tim Hughes took over at the police department, and I mean, the solve rates for 2015, 16, 17, and even before 2015 hovered around 50%. Right. Um, the solve rates now are 80% and higher, and that all changed when Tim Hughes took over the homicide department. Um, Do you know why? What happened? Well, they run it now kind of like an episode of 48 Hours. All hands on deck. They go out and interview people. They don't wait for them to come in and talk to them. <laughs> and uh, quite honestly, Tim Hughes is a very intimidating guy. I think that, that that was a big part of how they got a lot of cases solved very quickly because when Tim Hughes comes to see you, it's scary, I, I would imagine. I, I've never had him come see me in that right. capacity, but right. um, I think that was a big part of it, is that they were getting out and gathering information as opposed to waiting for the information to come to them. Okay. So now we're at your, how did your case come up in the prosecutor's office again? How did he get brought up again? So Scott did a thing, um, and I, I I, I want to believe that it was strategy and not just a happy accident, but he went and talked to the crime scene detective and had them finally answer the question, who shot first? Mm -hmm. And the, the evidence, the way the glass fell in the car and the fact that Cody had two gunshot wounds, one that grazed his thigh and then one that ultimately killed him, he felt confident that Quentin shot first. He shot the glass out in the window, mm. Cody shot him, and then as he was falling, he shot Cody. Hmm. Cody's arm was up like this, and the bullet went right through his chest and hmm. into his heart. So um, that they felt confident that that was the sequence of events. So that wasn't really new information. Like That was information they've had since the night it happened, mm. but he added that to the probable cause he had previous previously written, presented it to Tom Shaley, who now was making the decisions in, in homicide, and he took it. Hmm. So that was September of 18, was when they finally took the, the case, so almost two years. Okay, so it goes to court. Yeah. But so I, know, I know there's a lot prior to going to court, a lot your family's going through, a lot of you know, back and forth, a lot of, you know, things happening. Um, are you, do you remember those things or? Mm, sure. Okay. Give me. Well, why don't, why don't we finish the court stuff and then we can go back and you kind go of right ahead. discuss You're in charge the, of this. Go ahead. <laughs> dis discuss the intricacies. Um, okay. But so we um, went to court. His first hearing was sent in January of 2019. Um, there was another homicide case, another murder trial stacked on top of it, and this was pre-COVID, so they can't blame it on COVID, mm -hmm. even though now they have multiple, multiple homicides built, you know, stacked on top of each other, and right. 
Um, but I didn't know until the day we went in to start the trial that we were getting continued. Mm. Um, another thing that I often talk to families about when they get their initial trial dates, like don't write that in stone because it's not likely that it's going to happen on those dates. Um, I didn't know that, so I was completely unprepared for that to happen. Another one of the... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had already taken off the week, so I sat through that homicide, that murder trial with that family. And that's kind of how Java got started. I mean, I mean, Java started actually in September of 2018 um, in a, a manner of calling out the system, like these are things that are happening all over the place. The, we can't make them come in and talk, mm -hmm. you know, the, all of those things. So I didn't even understand the court process at the time that Java started. Like we were just trying to get families to the point of my, you know, including myself to the point of getting to the court system. Right, right. Um, so I reached out to multiple families and, um, we started off with talking to Kevin Leininger at the New Sentinel, and then we found another group that had talked with Jamie Duffy. This is in in um, the summer of 18. Yeah, the summer of 18. Um, we all decided, like, there's strength in numbers. like. My voice isn't being heard. They don't, they don't give a rip about what I'm saying. They don't give a rip about what you're saying individually. But if we all came together, maybe they would hear us. Mm -hmm. So um, now I'm learning the court system. And like, what in the heck is going on here? Like, how do they, there's 52 weeks in a year. How do they have two murder trials on the, scheduled on the same date? Right. Like, how does that happen? So... I sat through that trial. Now I have a little bit better of understanding of how trials go. Um, we're set for July. He fires his defense attorney two weeks before the new trial dates, gets a new defense attorney. We get continued to September. We go to trial in September and get a hung jury, mm. mistrial. So then we're scheduled for December 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Cody's angel anniversary is December 6th. Mm. That is what proved to me, and I tell families this all the time, that it's God's timing. It's God's timing because now I don't have, I mean, December 6th is a, a horrible day for me every year. But December 5th is a great day mm. because that's the day we got justice. Oh, okay. So we went to trial, um, waited all day on December 5th for the jury to come back and at that time COVID had was that because of COVID oh no it was the after 430 thing that's the thing so after 430 if the jury comes back after 430 the courthouse is closed so in our first trial they let us all I had probably close to 25, 30 supporters in court right. with me. So right. they all waited in the courthouse mm -hmm. after 4.30 with me, and the jury didn't come back hung until like 11.30 at night. And so the courthouse closed at 4.30. The victim's assistants told us that we either 
get out or stay in. Once you mm -hmm. go out, you can't get back in. Right. So six o'clock comes, seven o'clock comes. We're like starving. Right. And there's like a vending machine with cookies and candy. So I'm like talking to my victim's assistants, like, can I run out and get a pizza? You know, some pizzas for all these people. Like, can we get delivery? Like what? There's no method to feed families while they're waiting on a jury verdict? Like what is going on? Mm -hmm. So um, my uncle actually pulled her aside and she went and asked the, the judge and the judge gave an order that they could order delivery. Okay. And the security had to let the pizzas in. Mm -hmm. So we they did we did get pizzas. My uncle paid for it, and um, we fed everybody. But again, we were still there till like eleven thirty. It was after midnight by the time we got up to the courtroom. Heard that it was a hung jury. Rescheduled the trial. You know all that stuff. So the next trial, and I think it's because of how loud I was and. Fran Gold did have to come and tell me to be quiet and then they kicked us down to the first floor mm. because the jury was deliberating in in the courthouse apparently we were in in Zent's courtroom um, but apparently the jury could still hear us right right and so they moved us down to the first floor and then the food thing was a big mess mm -hmm. and all of that so I think it was because of that that our next jury she only allowed three people to come in for the jury verdict. Like none of us could be in the courthouse while the while we were waiting for the right. jury. And this right. is December. So yeah. we're like waiting out in the courtyard freezing mm -hmm. to death. Finally we went to my house because I, I just live like five minutes from the courthouse. Um, but they would only allow three people to come up and hear the verdict. Mm -hmm. So I mean Cody had had four brothers and sisters. Um, you know my, my dad's remarried, my mom's remarried. like. Who, what three people am I gonna, what two people am I gonna pick to go in with me, right? right? So I decided that my dad and my stepmom and my mom were the three people. I didn't even go in to hear the verdict on the second trial. Um, kind of to prove a point, but also just because I didn't know how to choose. And I wanted to be with Cody's brothers and sisters while we were waiting. Right. Um, so, but it, it was, I think 7.30 that the second jury came in. We didn't wait until 11.30 the second time. Right. Now, you said something about uh, wanting to prove a point. What, what did you mean by that? When you didn't go in, you wanted to prove a point. What did that mean? Just how that unfair that rule was. Uh -huh. Like, how, do you, how does a, a grieving mother choose among her pa family members who's going to go in and hear the verdict of a case that is very important to every person that was waiting out there hmm. right okay so what did the verdict come back what did they say it was guilty mm -hmm. and then he um what's it called seceded to the gun enhancement mm -hmm. so um yep we ended up getting 60 years on the homicide and 10 years on the gun enhancement wow yeah hmm. so and he's not doing well in prison, I don't think. He's already caught a new case. Actually, within like two years, he caught a new case in prison for battery to a public safety official. Hmm. And they actually just pled that out like this month or September, um, and he got another eight years. Now, I know someone listening is probably going to ask me through an email, are you still following everything he's doing in mm, prison? Absolutely. 
and why? Um, just to make sure he stays there. Just to make sure nothing Yankee happens, nothing he doesn't like do get some degree that gets him out of prison 30 years early or so you still don't trust the system do you oh absolutely not and the more i've learned about the system the less i trust the system hmm. so this was all december 5th when you when he was finally found guilty right and like you said it was all god's timing yeah absolutely so it was three years almost to the day hmm. so december 5th of 2019 we got the guilty verdict and he was killed December 6th, 6th. of 2016. Right. So. And this, while this was going on, all the struggles and going to court and all that, Java was slowly being formed. Yes, yes. Java was a definitely a grassroots. Um, we're still all volunteers. We don't have any paid employees. Um, we all volunteer our time and um, my function within Java is helping families navigate through the justice system because, right. believe it or not, the same things are still happening. Right. You know, the conti multiple continuances. I have a family right now that has been continued. The actual trial dates have been continued four times. We're going on the fifth this next month. Um, we're fairly certain that they're going to have another continuance because there's a speedy on the same dates. Mm. With that being said, I'm going to stop you, <laughs> okay, because I want to make sure our listeners, we wanted to hear who you were, how you got started, we wanted to hear about your son, we wanted to hear how that all came to be. We're going to stop right there, and we'll continue this conversation next week. Folks, I want to thank, thank Stacy for being here. I'm having a little trouble talking. <laughs> Thanks, Stacy, for being here with us. She's going to explain to us next week what, how Java started, how it's going, what it's all about, and how maybe, if you're a listener out there, it can help you. Stacy, thank you very much for being here with us this week. We're going to pick up next week and figure out exactly what Java's all about. Okay. Folks, all right. Thanks for listening to Police Pod Talk. Make sure you tune in next week so we can hear the rest of this story. Thanks again for hanging out with us. Remember, you can always go to policepodtalk at gmail.com. Or check us out on Facebook at Cleveland Junior or Police Pod Talk. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.